Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Edward Murphy was an engineer who worked with the Air Force in the late 1940s on the rocket sled experiments that were designed to test how human beings would relate to high speeds. In one particular case, uh, the victim, I mean the subject of the test, was hooked up with 16 sensors. Each sensor only had two ways it could go and be attached. But at the end of the expensive test, it was determined that all 16 sensors had been placed in the incorrect way. Edward Murphy was so frustrated by it, he developed an axiom, which you know as Murphy's Law. Remember it? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That came from Edward Murphy. Throughout the years, there have been other axioms attributed to Murphy. We don't know if he came up with them or not. But for example, there's Murphy's Law of Belief. It says, tell a man there are 300 billion stars in the universe and he'll believe you. Tell him there is wet paint on a bench and he'll have to touch it first. (laughs) Or Murphy's Law of Copiers. It says, the legibility of a copy is inversely proportional proportional to its importance. And then I love this one, Murphy's military law. Never share a foxhole with somebody braver than you are. You have to think about that, but it's true. Now, there's no evidence that Edward Murphy developed any axioms about spiritual matters. But if he had, I'm convinced that at the top of his list would have been this one. Running ahead of God leads to bad decisions and painful consequences. You know who discovered that first of all? Our subject, our friend named Abraham. He's a living illustration of how bad decisions and painful consequences are always the result of running ahead of God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, as we discover why two's company and three's a crowd. Now, remember where we are in our study of Abraham. In Genesis 15, God came to Abraham and calmed down his fears about the future and soothed his regrets about the past by saying, Abraham, don't worry. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your reward. And he took Abraham out that night and showed him the stars of the sky. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And that great verse, Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed what God said, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God ratified that covenant by that strange ceremony of dividing the animal pieces. It was a way to show two kings who were entering into agreement were committed to keeping their end of the bargain to make that contract uh, valid. 
But when God told Abraham to cut the animal pieces in two, he put Abraham to sleep. And God himself walked through those animal pieces carrying the torch, signifying that God alone was responsible for this unconditional covenant God made with Abraham. It didn't depend upon Abraham. It didn't depend upon anybody. It depended upon the faithfulness of God. Now that should have been enough, but it wasn't. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. We come to Abraham's problem. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Infertility is a common problem, and it's a painful problem to one out of 12 couples in our society. My daughter, Julia, who's a licensed professional counselor, has written a book on infertility called Pray Big Things, talking with couples about how to handle emotionally and physically the problem of infertility. But it's not only a physical and emotional problem, it can be a spiritual problem. It causes people to trust or to lose trust in the trustworthiness of God, especially when they feel like they've been given a promise by God. That was the situation with Sarah and Abraham. The reason their infertility was so painful was it seemed to contradict what God had said to them. God had promised to make them parents of a great nation. And yet, he made that promise when Abraham was 60. By the time we get to Genesis 16, Abraham is 85 years of age. And there is no answer to the promise. Whenever our current situation is at odds with God's promise, it causes a crisis of faith, and it tempts us to run ahead of, with God. Whenever our life situation doesn't line up with what we believe is God's promise, there is a crisis of faith that tempts us to run ahead of God. Maybe you're a single adult here or watching this broadcast. You feel like God has promised to give you a mate. He may have even told you who that mate is. The only problem is he hadn't told that person about his promise to you. And so you face a dilemma. Do you try to push your way into a relationship? Do you force the issue or do you wait on God? Or maybe you're in need of a certain item, a high ticket item, maybe like a house. And you know there's a limit to how much debt you can take and not violate the biblical command of unreasonable indebtedness, burdensome debt, and yet no house comes on the market. Do you move ahead and plow ahead anyway and take on that unreasonable debt? Abraham was facing a similar crisis of faith. You know, you would have thought Abraham would have learned his lesson by now, uh, the dangers of running ahead of God. Remember what happened? God had told him when he was 60, I'm gonna have a land for you flowing with milk and honey. And finally, after 15 years, Abraham made it to the promised land. The only problem was the milk and honey quit flowing almost as soon as he got there. There was a drought. And so he was tempted to run ahead of God. God had told him to go to Canaan. He didn't tell him to go to Egypt. Abraham went anyway, and the result was a disaster. You would have thought Abraham would have learned his lesson, but he didn't. You know, uh, I think about, Ben was talking about our new campus. <clears throat> I remember when we first started talking about it almost 15 years ago, a widow in our church at that time came up to me and she said, Pastor, 
let's make sure we don't run ahead of God, but let's also be sure we don't lag behind God. Yes, we're to wait on the Lord, but we never want the Lord waiting on us. When God gives us the go signal, we need to go. When God says no go, we need to not go. How do you know the difference? How does God signal when it's time to move ahead in something? We're gonna talk about this more when we get to Genesis 24 and the story of Isaac and the search for his bride. But let me give you three ways God says go or no go. One is through biblical commands. God will never command you to do something that violates the principles of his word, never. It doesn't matter how lonely you are as a single, God will never have you marry an unbeliever, never. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. God will never lead you into or cause you to stay in an immoral relationship. Biblical commands are one way we know when God wants us to go or not. Secondly, wise counselor. The Bible says in the abundance of counselor, there is victory. God uses other people and we need to learn how to weigh their advice, whether it is godly or ungodly counsel. A third way God sometimes signals to us to either go or stay is with outward confirmation through a sign. Now, as we'll see in Genesis 24, Signs are not always reliable. First of all, if you're the one who determines what the sign is, you can unconsciously formulate a sign that is in keeping with what you want to do anyway. Signs are not good for the determination of God's will, but they are good for the confirmation of God's will. Sometimes God will send us a confirming sign to signal that we're going in the right direction. You know, this is a story that has by now become a part of First Baptist Dallas legacy, but it's an important part of our story as a church. Many of you have heard it numbers of times, but many of you are new to our church or you're watching. Let me just show you how God sometimes uses signs to communicate his will. As I said, when we started talking about this largest modern church construction program in history, We voted as a church to move forward in a fundraising effort to see what God would do, and we couldn't have picked a worse time to do it. It was 2008, 2009. We were in the midst of the greatest recession in American history since the Great Depression. And I began to have a little bit of doubt. Are we supposed to really go forward in this? I'll never forget Our chairman, Mark LaVorne, and I went down one day to Madeline's, La Madeline's down the street from here. And I remember it was about that time that the S&P had collapsed. It had hit rock bottom at 666, 666. I remember that number for some reason. You know, today it's almost 4,000. It was 666. And I remember saying to Mark, you know, Mark, I know we're supposed to do this. The church has voted for it. But is God telling us to wait or should we plow ahead anyway? And Mark said, Robert, the only thing we can do is pray about it. So I said, well, let's do that. And we vowed that we would pray about it. The next morning, I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. If you want us to move forward, I need you to give me a sign and I need you to give it today. Now, I know you're not supposed to pray that way. 
I've preached that you're not supposed to pray that way. But I couldn't do any better. That was the best I could do. And so I got up off my knees and went to the church and I already had a luncheon scheduled that day at the Petroleum Club with two of our members, Andy and Joan Horner, two godly, godly people. And uh, they had just come back from Argentina and we were gonna talk about their mission trip to Argentina. And so we were sitting there talking about Argentina and Andy just out of the blue said, you know, pastor, I know times are rough right now economically, but they're really not that bad. I mean, they're getting $20 for a hot dog out at the ballpark. It must not be that bad. <laughs> and he said, I think we ought to go forward with this program. And I thought to myself, is this the sign, Lord? It's not very much, but I was willing to grab hold of anything I could get. So I said, well, thank you, Andy. I appreciate your confidence. We dismissed, said goodbye. I walked back down to the church, to the Ross parking building, to get in my car to go make a hospital visit. And as I was driving down the street, headed to Pacific by the majestic theater there, I was turning the corner when my phone rang, and it was Andy on the phone. He said, Pastor, I forgot to tell you something. Joan and I want to make the lead gift in our building project, and we have this amount we would like to give as the lead gift. And when they told me what it was, I almost drove into the back of the Majestic Theater. <laughs> it was the largest single gift ever given in the history of First Baptist Church Dallas. It was the largest single gift we know of that has ever been given to a local church. And they gave that gift and that gift encouraged others to give and others to give and others to give. And in the midst of that great recession, we were able to raise $135 million. And I'm telling you, literally churches all over America said, if First Baptist Dallas can do that, we can do that too. God used that. You know, years later, I remember Andy saying to me, I don't know why I called you when I did. We had made that decision six months earlier, and I just kept forgetting to tell you. I don't know why we told you that day. I said, Andy, I know. God used that as a confirming sign. I got to see Andy a couple of weeks ago. Hadn't seen him in a long time. He's 98 years old. He's happy and still praising God. God be praised for a man like Andy Horner and Joan, and God be praised for a church that knows when it's time to move forward. God blesses sometimes with a confirming sign. Well, Abraham didn't have any of those or Sarah. There was no biblical command to do what he was about to do. In fact, a biblical command not to, but they plowed ahead. Look at Sarah's proposal. So Sarah said to Abram, we've been waiting here for 25 years for a child. It's not working. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Now listen, Sarah was a woman of faith. First Peter 3, 5 says she was a woman of faith. But people of faith can have lapses of faith. And that was true for Sarah. She basically said, we can't depend upon God to do what he promised. We need to help her out. So here's a plan. Now you have to read this and think, Sarah, 
what is wrong with you that you would come up with an idea to tell your husband to have sex with another woman? That's unbelievable. Have you been reading too many romance novels or visiting internet sites you shouldn't go to? Where would you come up with such an immoral idea? Well, actually, it was the law of the day. Law number 146 of Hammurabi's Code that Abraham and followed and the people in Mesopotamia followed said, if a man has a barren wife, he can have sex with somebody else and the child born can be the heir of that man. It was perfectly legal in man's eyes, but it was immoral in God's eyes. Listen, God's plan has always been the same for marriage since the beginning, Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is always God's plan. One man with one woman in a lifetime commitment. The reason I make a point of that is immediately after Thanksgiving, the Senate of the United States of America is voting on a bill they call it the Respect for Marriage Bill. As one of our members said, it's really a disrespect for marriage bill because it's an attempt by the Congress to codify same-sex marriage, to take that Obergefell ruling from years ago and make it the law of the land. And if that happens, you say, well, what's wrong with respect? Should we have respect for all people? That law is a Trojan horse that will usher in persecution for churches and pastors that refuse to marry same-sex couples. We as a society cannot condone what God has condemned, and God has condemned same-sex marriages. Now, we need to call our senators, we need to call everybody we can and voice our disapproval about what they're to do. God's law doesn't change. It doesn't change with culture. Man's laws does. God's law does not change. And so what she was proposing was totally against God's law. So how did Abraham respond to Sarah's proposal? Men, how would you respond? Your wife comes to you and she says, honey, we're not getting any younger right now. So I want you to take this young, beautiful Egyptian maid of mine with a perfect tan and I want you to have sex with her. Would you please do that for me, Abraham, honey bunny? Would you have sex with a Sarah for me? How would you respond? Just like Abraham, trying to wipe the smile off of his face, he says, well, honey, if that's what you want, you know, what am I to do? It says, Abraham, listen to the voice of his wife. F.B. Meyer, in his biography of Abraham, says, it's always hard to resist temptation when it appeals to natural instinct or to distrusting fear. Sarah's proposal did both. It appealed to Abraham's carnal instinct, but also to his fear that God couldn't keep his promise. But there's another reason this temptation was especially potent. It came from Abraham's wife. Ladies, don't ever underestimate the influence you have over your husbands. Even when they're buried in a newspaper or in a football game on television and you're trying to talk to them and all they can do is grunt, don't forget, they really are listening. You may not think they are. They're listening to you. You have great influence over them for good or for bad. Adam listened to the voice of his wife Eve and the whole race was plunged into destruction. Sarah 
influenced her husband. He listened. And this is a catastrophe of all catastrophes, as we'll see in a moment. Now, I could make the application, men don't listen to your wives. But I value my wife too much to come up with that application. And most importantly, it would be the wrong application. Because there are times we better listen to our wives. Pontius Pilate should have listened to his wife about getting involved with the Jesus trial. It's not, don't listen to your wife. We ought to listen to our wives. We ought to listen to our husbands. But we ought to weigh what they say against the truth of God's word. Godly people can say ungodly things. And Jesus experienced that when Peter said, oh, don't go to the cross, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Unfortunately, Abraham did not weigh the advice that Sarah gave to him, and he gave into it. Verse 3 says, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, that means he was 85, Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. I'm sure when he got the news that Hagar was pregnant, he probably was tempted to say, isn't God good? Okay, this wasn't his perfect will, but it's his permissive will, and he allowed this to happen. Praise be to God. No, it was just the beginning of a tragic end. Look at Hagar's provocation. Verse 4, and when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived her mistress, that is, Sarai, was despised in her sight. She had been a slave. She had been elevated to Abraham's wife, the same level, and now she was really above Sarah because she was able to do what Sarah couldn't do. And she began to despise Sarah. She started prancing around the tent. Look at me, look at me, look at what I have. I have the child you could not give to your husband. You know, there's an interesting proverb I came across, Proverbs 30, verses 21 to 23. Men, look at this especially. Under three things, the earth quakes, and under four, it cannot bear up. Number one, under a slave when he becomes king. Secondly, a fool when he's satisfied with food. Third, an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And the fourth thing that will cause an earthquake is a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. In other words, men, when your wife senses that you love anybody else or anything else more than you love her, there's going to be an earthquake in your home. Your wife is not going to put up with it, nor should she put up with it. Doesn't matter whether it's another woman, a child, a hobby. Anytime something or somebody else replaces the place your wife ought to have in your heart, it's going to cause trouble. And that's exactly what happened here. Look at verse 5. Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Translation, Abraham, I can't believe you did such a thing. Look at what has happened. Oh, God's gonna get you, Abraham. <laughs> and Abraham starts to say, but Sarah, you were the one. And then he thought better of it. 
He thought better or pointed out, she's the one who came up with this idea. So what does he do? What most men do, he became passive. But Abraham said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power, do to her whatever you wanna do. In other words, I'm tired of all this trouble and turmoil. I'm just gonna let you have your way. Do with her what you wanna do. That is not the right response. What he should have said as the spiritual leader of the house is, Sarah, you're right. I was wrong, you were wrong, we were wrong. Let's go to the altar and kneel before God and confess our mistake and ask God to redeem the situation. But he didn't do it. He just told Sarah to do what she wanted to, to keep peace in the tent. So Sarai, verse six, treated Hagar harshly and she fled from her presence. As act two on this drama comes to a close, we see Sarah feeling betrayed, Hagar being mistreated, and Abraham absolutely miserable. Remember, running ahead of God produces bad decisions and painful consequences. Fortunately, we serve a God who is able to work together for good all things, including our bad decisions. Let's see how he does that. Beginning in verse seven, the angels promise. Now the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water. Remember, she's pregnant, she's out in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he says, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. Many people believe this angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, is a reference to Jesus Christ. Many times, the angel of the Lord is what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, Jesus before Bethlehem. If that's the case here, the first person Jesus appears to on earth is an unwed single mother who is a foreigner. That would make sense that Jesus would choose an outcast to make his first appearance to. It's not that he doesn't know where she's been. He wants her to admit that she's left her mistress. And so the angel gives her a command and a promise. The command is, Hagar, I want you to go back to Sarah and submit yourself to her authority. And then he gives her this promise. The angel says, I will give you a son who will also be the father of a great nation. As we'll see next time, that son, Ishmael, meaning God hears, is the father of the Arab nations today. There's not an Arab in the world who doesn't trace his ancestry to Ishmael. Even though Abraham did have a son, Ishmael, and blessed him, the covenant blessing, Genesis 17, 21 says, comes through Isaac, the son yet to be born, not through Ishmael. Look at verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. You know, I'm going to talk about in my interview with Netanyahu right after this service that you can watch anytime. We talk about this experience. The whole basis of the conflict today between Israel and the Arab nations can be traced back to one couple that made a bad decision and ran ahead of God. Isn't that amazing? 
One couple 4,000 years ago made a bad decision, and that decision has had repercussions, worldwide repercussions, for thousands of years and continues to, to this very day. But beyond explaining the conflict between Israel and the Arab nations, this story illustrates three timeless principles I want to share with you in closing today to help you avoid the temptation to run ahead of God. Principle number one is this, artificial deadlines produce unnecessary stress. Artificial deadlines produce unnecessary stress. Abraham and Sarah said, by 85, we ought to have had children. That was an artificial deadline. God never told them when the baby was coming. He said, the baby's coming. But they set this deadline, artificial. Now we've passed the deadline, we better take matters into our own hands. Don't do that. Artificial deadlines produce unnecessary stress. As we enter into this Thanksgiving season, I'm always reminded of something that happened to me more than 35 years ago on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I was in the coffee shop of the Houston Intercontinental Airport. My flight had been delayed, and so I took out my yellow tablet, and I spent several hours sketching out what I believe were God's goals and plans for my life. And I had five specific goals, and I actually attached a date, a year, to accomplish each of those goals by. And I felt like it was in keeping with God's plan for my life. When I got back to Dallas, I plunged ahead in trying to achieve those five goals, and by the date that I had selected, you know, all that did was it caused stress in our marriage. It caused stress in my work. It caused stress in every area of my life. And then a series of unrelated events came to pass that made me have to put aside my list and concentrate on other things for a while. It was decades before I picked up that list again. And after several decades, you know what I discovered? Every one of those goals had been accomplished, but not by the date I had set. It was an artificial deadline. The point I'm making to you is don't give up your God-given goals. Don't do that, but give up your manufactured deadlines. It'll make life a lot more pleasant for you if you do. Second principle, God sees our situation and he hears our prayers. You know what the most significant verse in this old chapter is? It's verse 13, when Hagar says to the angel, you are a God who sees. This Egyptian slave girl knew more about God than Abraham did. She said, God, you see my situation. You know where I am. The same is true for you. When you think God has not kept his promise to you, when you're frustrated about your lack of progress, when you feel like you've been abandoned by God, remember, God knows exactly where you are. He knows your situation, and he will answer in his way and his time. And that leads to the third principle. Waiting on God produces spiritual maturity. Waiting on God produces spiritual maturity. There is a difference between belief and trust. 
You can believe in an instant like Abraham did. He believed God's promise and his faith was counted as righteousness. That was instantaneous. But there's a difference between belief and trust. Trust doesn't happen in a moment. It's developed over many, many years. Psalm 37 verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord and trust also in him and he will do it. God wants to develop trust in your heart. And that only happens over a period of time. Now, listen to this. You know how I would have entered the story if I were writing it? I would have said, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And lo and behold, the next month, Sarah discovered she was pregnant too. And nine months later, she gave birth. And they all lived under the same tent together forever and ever happily. That's not how the story ends. Yes, Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86, but Sarah wasn't pregnant. She didn't get pregnant the next year, the next year, the next year. After a decade, she was still waiting. It was 14 years after Ishmael was born that the promise was finally fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah had to wait, but never forget this. Waiting time isn't wasted time. God uses waiting time to prepare us for the future. And he was using those 14 years to develop Abraham's trust so that Abraham could respond to the greatest test he would ever face in his life in Genesis chapter 22, the offering of Isaac as a sacrifice. God's doing something in your life as well. Remember, God is much more interested and what happens in you than what happens to you. There's not one circumstance happening to you right now that God couldn't change in an instant if he wanted to. No, he's interested in what's happening in you. Waiting time isn't wasted time. Isn't that what Isaiah the prophet said? Those who wait upon the Lord shall gain new strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not get tired. They shall walk and not become weary. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.